Welcome to the Financial Liberty Podcast. Until you wake up from the American dream, financial uncertainty will be your American reality. Join Sam Legaspi and Ko Sukamoto and their guests as they explore how you can attain financial liberty by uncovering truths that have been kept secret for decades. Have you ever played a game and didn't know the rules? How can you ever win? Learn the rules to the game and in turn, learn how to win. Now, on to the show. Hello and welcome to the Financial Liberty Project with Sam Legaspi and Ko Sukamoto. Today we're going to be talking about the science of building a portfolio. Good afternoon, gentlemen. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. How are you? Yeah, oh, you know, we're just uh, hanging in there. Fantastic. So the science of building a portfolio, what is that all about? What does that entail? Well, the science of building a portfolio, it's uh, a lot of times people go through these these periods where all they need to do is think about, well, I'm uh, investing for my future. All I do is just go by math equation and subtract my age from the number 100. And that's the amount of money I should have in stocks. So if I'm 50, I should have 50 in stocks and 50 in bonds. Or if I'm 60, I should have uh, 60 in bonds and 40% of my money in stocks. There's all these items out there, these, these sayings out there that you should do. But what we want to do is we want to talk about our science of building a portfolio because in the end, it's a science. It's not color by numbers. It's not just getting some super glue and putting a model together. There is a science to it. Even though once you got the retirement plan, once you have the planning all squared away with, the building of the portfolio is very, very, very important. It's, it's like in building property. If you're building a home, you have a custom-made home. You hire an architect. They look at your plot of land and they design the home. And uh, once they design the home, they've got to go through the the science of building that home. They just don't get a bunch of wood and nails and just start going away. There's there's a science when it comes to making sure that the integrity of that house is put together properly so it could last years and years and years and years. And basically the same thing goes on with the science of building a portfolio. It's a science. So we wanted to dedicate this podcast to what we think are some things and some ideas that people should utilize when they're putting together a portfolio for themselves that should last them for the next 25, 30, 45 years. It should really last them for the duration of the retirement. Right. And while we may say it's a science, that's not being said to make it sound like it needs to be complicated in any overly <laughs> fashion at all. It can be quite simple. But I think a lot of people end up complicating building their portfolio just because they hear so many different views, so many different things on different channels, uh, books, and they get confused. And one of the most common mistakes seen is where people think that because it needs to be quote unquote complicated, if they don't make it that way, if they don't make it complicated, then they're, they're doing something wrong. When in fact, if they make it very, very simple, they're more than likely doing the right thing. Yes, it can be a science. It is a science, but at the same time, it's not a difficult science. No, it's just understanding things, right? I mean, if you understand some of the metrics, if you understand the definitions and how they're applied, it's like looking at a at a hammer. If you don't understand what that tool is utilized for, it just looks like a really ugly looking piece of metal with a piece of wood stuck to it. It's like, what is that thing? And then you start realizing, oh, it's a hammer and this is what it's used for? Okay. So there's a, there's a lot. I mean, you know, because we run into so many individuals on a regular basis and they all feel, well, actually, I don't. I don't know if we've ever really run into an individual that 
has understood the science of putting it together and actually understand the terms that we utilize. And oftentimes when I'll bring up some of these terms that we're about to go ahead and talk about, their eyes start rolling in the back of their head and they, they have this glazed donut look where they're like, oh no, <laughs> we're, we're going to start talking technical here. And and yeah, they're technical terms and we try to keep these things at a non-technical level. But this is really to a certain extent, almost how as much as as technical as we're probably going to get when it comes to building. And I think this is really what's important, right, Coz? Because in the end, if you don't understand, and, and, and by the way, folks, the science of building a portfolio has a lot to do with measuring your risk. That's really what it boils down to. And if you don't have a way of, on how you can measure your risk or diagnose the risk that your portfolio has inherently, then how in the world can you figure out if there needs to be any adjustments? Because the last thing you want to know is you find your portfolio has taken so much risk, more risk than what the average portfolio is assuming out there, but then yet you're not getting the same return that you should be getting based on the amount of risk that you're taking. So really, it's a function of, of understanding risk. And if you look at every industry, I don't care what industry that is, if it's automotive, if it's uh, the medical industry, when you walk into a doctor's office, they diagnose the problem. When you walk into a mechanic, they run a test, a diagnostic on your car. They got to try to figure out where are the issues, what are the problems. And if, they, if there aren't any issues, if there aren't any problems, then they probably just go ahead and tell you there aren't any issues, there aren't any problems. So this is an opportunity for us to get an idea as to, by diagnosing the portfolio, what type of risk that portfolio has in relation to the return that you should be receiving or are receiving. Now, how many people do you think, like let's say out of a sample of 100 people, Sam, out of that 100, how many people do you think in America today, how many people out of 100 actually know or have any kind of focus on doing, you know, doing what you're talking about, is, is analyzing their own their risk in their own portfolio? Do they have any idea of how to do it? And again, how many people out of 100 would you say know how to do that? <laughs> I'd probably say very little. I mean, there's probably a very, very minute percentage out there that actually knows how to measure risk. And that's just from experience and, and speaking to individuals that are in the know on how to do it, or they've had some past experience with it. But for the most part, we're not trained in this. If you're not a mechanic, you're not going to be trained in operating a diagnostic machine. And so most people, when they go through high school, they go through college, they're not going to be trained in how to diagnose money and the risk versus the return part of money. So very little, but I will tell you this, Coase, this is interesting, is that a large amount of major Fortune 500 companies or just large institutions, large government institutions know these numbers. Now, I'm not talking about necessarily the CEO or the CFO. I'm talking about the group of people that are in charge of managing a pension or managing corporate cash flow or just managing the investment account, an endowment fund for a major university. They understand this. They understand the risk. They understand the returns. And a lot of it has to do because it's in part of the charter of that particular investment plan. That investment company, whether it's an endowment or corporate cash flow, it is ran by a corporate charter or an investment plan. And that investment plan always puts risk above return and how they measure risk. So what we're doing, Coz, and what we've been doing for the longest time, and for all you guys listening, is taking what large companies have been doing for the longest time, and we're applying it to the everyday Joe and their portfolios. 
So what is now available or what's been available for the longest time is truly available for a lot of people. It's just really a function of applying these numbers and understanding them. Right. Now, you know, there's a, I've called it a, a symptom of, of someone who clearly is not utilizing these principles and in fact is doing the opposite where they're doing what most other people do. And that symptom often appears at the water cooler at work where people gather there and they, they talk about various things. And sometimes that topic is how much money they've made in the stock market or some other investments. Rarely does somebody go to the water cooler to brag how much money they lost, right? And you'll never hear that conversation where even though that person is proud of how much money he or she's made, if asked by someone, okay, so great, that's great that you, you made all that money in your investment, but what was the risk that you took to get that return? That conversation, that question never is asked. It's never discussed. The water cooler conversation is typically how much money was made. And by the way, when things go against them, those people stop appearing at the water cooler. Or if they are there, they won't talk about something else. They'll talk about what was the sporting event of the weekend. <laughs> or, or if they do talk about it, they're no longer specific. They just say, dude, I got hammered last month. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so that's that's the typical picture of, of, of a person or a group of people who don't utilize risk analysis to figure out how they're positioned in an investment. And you know what, Coz, it's pretty amazing because you look at professional sports, any sports really, I mean, professional sports, their statistics, their ways of analyzing the game have actually filtered down into youth sports. And what the youth sports are actually utilizing are very similar to what professional sports are doing, of course, to a smaller degree. But you take a look at professional sports, they're always looking at these metrics. That's why that book Moneyball came out was to try to figure out how in baseball can they utilize the value of an individual as far as money and as far as what he's worked to that particular team in the form of RBIs and hits and, and, th and home runs and things of that nature. So what we're basically doing is we're taking the same metrics that a lot of these hedge funds, that a lot of these pension plans, these, these money managers that run these massive organizations, money, and we're applying it in a, in a manner which is easily explainable and hopefully understandable. And you know, it's really interesting is that we talk a lot about it and there's not a heck of a whole lot when it comes to the actual, the actual metric itself. The metric is very straightforward. There's not going to be like a 15 or 20 minute dialogue on each metric. It's basically, this is the metric and this is what it does. And it's probably just a small speaking point, but it weighs so much. But you know what's even more important, Coz, than we find this out? As much as people are educated and we've done this. We've educated people on these metrics. We've shown them the risk and the returns, and we've built a phenomenal portfolio. Individuals, they still go into la-la land, and they still find a means to complain about something. They go back to the water cooler mentality, that state of mind. It's it's uh, I don't know if that's human nature, Sam, but you're right. That's typically the gravitational pull of the typical mind. You can have the topic of risk analysis and, and management explained to you until you're <laughs> until we're blue in the face. They'll just go, well, thank you very much. Going back to the water cooler because that's easier for me to comprehend. Yeah, ex exactly. You know, drama is always easier to comprehend than anything. People need drama. Maybe that's the problem is people have an appetite for things that are really not all that important, but they're exciting. 
right? Yeah, yeah. Well, you know what? And and we we've, we've mentioned this many times, Coz, is that one of the the most written people and the most successful people investors out there is Warren Buffett, and he's written more essays on the topic of wealth than probably anyone else has. And constantly, maybe twice, three, four times a week, I'll see his post show up on Yahoo with regards to what made him successful or what these three things that people need to do to, to achieve success, whatever it is, there's always different. But the interesting part is no one seems to pay attention to him. The message is always the same. It doesn't deviate. It's, would you say it's boring? It's boring. It's boring because it's not exciting. Now, we don't want to say he's boring. No. But the things he talks about might be kind of boring. Yeah, it's to not some exciting. People, right? It's not exciting. Yeah. I remember, Sam, you always said, and I'm going to, I think I can quote you on this, is if making money starts to become an exciting experience, you've got problems, right? You got it. If you're, if you're making money because it's kind of a boring experience, you may be doing something right. But if it's exciting, watch out. Yeah. 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 If it's exciting, it's, you're doing something wrong. It's kind of, you really want to be in a position where you're watching paint dry. And if you're calling your friends up and saying, dude, did you buy that thing I told you to buy? Because that thing's up huge. It's, it's <laughs> you're probably doing something that ain't good. It, you know what? And, and we talk about this regularly and we try to communicate this and have it come across the airwaves as well as the, uh, the ether. When we talk to people, it's like golf. Golf is at its core, it should be boring. If it's just fairways and greens, fairways and greens, 18 times, it's boring. It's just you hit the ball in the fairway, your second shot's on the green, you two putt for par. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And but what happens is that you and I and thousands of other people love to make golf exciting by putting slices on the ball and losing our ball in the water and dumping it and hitting it 300 yards, but in the wrong direction and going on to a green and regulation only to five putt the thing. I mean, we really want to go ahead and make golf exciting. Well, okay. So let me talk about golf for a second because we both golf, right? Or at least we try, but here's the statistics. So 65% of the golf strokes taken by an average person is done on or around the green yet. Okay, so that means 35% of the shots taken are off the tee box or in the fairway, right? Yeah. So about a third of the shots are done away from the green and two thirds of the shots are done around the green. Yet, how much time does an average person practice golf on the range and not around the green? I would say it's close to 100%. I never, I hardly ever see a person practicing around the green. <laughs> And you know what? It's it's interesting. You know, you make that point because if one third of the shots are made away from the green and two thirds are right near the green, you go to the average driving range and the mats sometimes are filled depending on what time of day and the weekend you're on. And but then yet the chipping area is empty. <laughs> and the putting green maybe has one or two people. But people are just hammering away on their swings. And here's the other part too, Coz. This is interesting. There is a swing coach, and the swing coach works on your full swing. There really isn't a definition short game coach. There's a lot of them, but they don't necessarily advertise. They're not, they're a small percentage of the population of coaches out there. When they're talking about a PGA pro, that PGA pro, you step up and you take a swing and they're analyzing your full swing. They're not necessarily analyzing your putting stroke or, hey, let me see if you can, you know, 10 feet away, it's a chip. And let me see how close you can get these 10 balls next to that target. They don't, yeah. they don't necessarily, you know, scope that out. Right, right. So it comes back to this. 
you know, there's a science in building everything, science in building a proper golf game. There's a science in looking at your car and diagnosing your vehicle for problems as well as a human body. Why not have a science of building a portfolio? And we talk about this on a regular basis and it it becomes really second nature to us. But it's something that's very, very, very important that I think is not discussed on a regular basis, which is understanding where your risk is. Without any further ado, because I think we teased the audience enough by just talking to them about what the metrics are and the the science of building a portfolio. But I think we want to go ahead and start off with a very first one. So the one metric that we start with and we take a look at, and there's no necessarily any order out of this, it's the, the one that we look at the most happens to be what's called the standard deviation. The standard deviation. That sounds deviant. No, and, and here, here's the thing, you know, it's a standard deviation and uh, we're not going to go all techie on you. I'm not going to have Coase start reciting the engineering handbook on the standard deviation. And Hey, I've, I've been away from that field for a while, so you can't call me, you can't <laughs> brand me as an engineer anymore. Okay. <laughs> but, but I did, but I detoxed, <laughs> but, but I tell you, you know, so the standard deviation, all we need to understand is when it comes to the standard deviation, it is the level of risk. And I'm going to be very basic here. You look at the benchmark, the benchmark happens to be, let's just call it the S&P 500, the stock market. So the stock market has what we call a standard deviation of 15. I'm just yanking that out, but it's right around there. Okay. So it has a standard deviation of 15. So what we want is in building a portfolio is we want a number that is what? Significantly lower, or significantly higher than 15 goes. Well, if you're an exciting type of person, then you might make the mistake of wanting something higher because you want it to be more exciting. You want to go to Magic Mountain and ride the wildest roller coaster of your life. And that's <laughs> exciting. But remember, I said, if money making becomes exciting, you may have some problems. Right. I think we really want, I mean, if you want to grow money safely, <laughs> ensure your future lifestyle, you're looking for things that have a lower standard deviation. You want a lower and easier a kinder roller coaster. You can't completely eliminate the roller coaster, but you want to you want to mitigate it. You want to mute it. You want to minimize it. Yeah, you want to make sure that you, the roller coaster you're riding doesn't necessarily go 80 miles an hour and it's called torture. <laughs> Over at Six Flags, a new roller coaster called torture. <laughs> you don't want that standard deviation. That's just something you don't you know necessarily want. So if you have a standard deviation of 15, and that's by far the benchmark that most people use which is the S&P 500. What I like to think is that if you can get a standard deviation uh, below 10 or below 9, then you're doing something really good. You're doing something really special. If you can get your level of risk to a degree where it's half the risk of the market, then that's a very good beginning point. That's oftentimes what we find, because we'll see people that have a standard deviation right at 15 or maybe a little over 15 or right around 13 or 14. And even though that says what it says, it only says one part of the equation because you have to marry the other parts of the metrics in building a portfolio. So now we understand what standard deviation is. It's the level of risk. Right. And and with that, Sam, I'll say that it has a lot to do with your personality as well. So if your personality is one where nothing phases you, you kind of go with the flow, then you can tolerate a little bit more in standard deviation. You could tolerate a little more of a roller coaster ride. But if you're a person who that person knows that they're going to freak out if there's a significant or even a moderate drop in their values of their portfolio, then that person is more of a conservative-minded person is going to definitely be more interested in a 
a portfolio with a lower standard deviation. So it ties in with the person's personality and trying to figure out what might be best for him or her. Well, it, it does. But at the same time, what happens is that a lot of people love to take the risk on the upside, but they hate losing the money. That's one of the areas is that there's that fine line is that, yeah, I love the volatility. I love the risk, but I just don't want to lose a penny. There's a lot of portfolio managers that actually operate in that manner. And they have stop losses very close to the buy-in points of a particular company that they purchase. But standard deviation is one of the metrics that we utilize to build a portfolio. The second one that we oftentimes look at is what's called the sharp ratio. The sharp ratio, let's just call it a sharp ratio. It's the measure of the amount of return that you're getting for every unit of risk that you're assuming. Let me repeat that. It's the return that you're getting for every unit of risk that you are assuming. So sharp ratio of 50, 60, 70, 80% basically means that a person's only receiving 50, 60, 70, 80% of the return of what they should be getting. So I'm going to make this really simple. So again, we're utilizing the benchmark, again, the S&P 500. And the S&P 500, let's just say, has a sharp ratio of one. It doesn't, it, but it, let's just say it has a sharp ratio of one for making things simple. So if your portfolio, we measure your portfolio and your portfolio has a sharp ratio of 0.50, so half of one, basically what you're doing is you are receiving the returns, half the returns for the amount of risk that you're taking. So for every unit of risk that you're taking, you're only getting a half of the return you should be getting. That is not good. Okay. And you know, oftentimes Coz and I will go ahead and when we look at a portfolio, we'll actually see that. We'll actually see that the sharp ratio is lower than what the benchmark is. And for every unit of risk that that person is taking, they're not being rewarded efficiently or properly. What we like to see is a number that's right around the same amount, if not significantly higher or higher. So utilizing that example, again, if you take a look at the market and the market has a number of one, a sharp ratio of one, if you have a sharp ratio in your portfolio of 1.5, then you're assuming 150% of the return for every unit of risk that you're taking. So you're assuming 50% more returns than what the average person should be receiving with the same amount of risk that they're taking. So that happens to be a significant metric that we utilize. And here's the thing, here's how we kind of marry the two together. So if you're getting, let's say, a 7% return and you have a standard deviation of 15, then the reality is you should be getting a 14% rate of return or higher, okay? And Or if you get the 7%, if you're getting a 7% rate of return, but now you realize you're taking too much risk to achieve that 7%, that's important because you take a look at it. If your portfolio, okay, your portfolio has a 15 standard deviation and you're getting a 7% rate of return and the market Okay, the S&P 500 has a standard deviation of 15, but then let's just assume that the market gets you 14%. You should be getting 14, but if you're getting 7%, you're taking way more risk than what you should be rewarded, assuming. Yeah, but you should if you're going to be taking that risk, you should be getting a 14% rate of return if not higher as well. So in other words, the rewards should be worth the risk. It has to be worthwhile for the amount of risk you're taking. That's one way to look at the sharp ratio. Right, right. Is the reward worth the risk? And that's how you marry it with a standard deviation is by looking at both. So again, utilizing the same example, if you've got that 7% rate of return, right? And you know you have a standard deviation of 15, 
then you understand that you're taking way too much risk. So can you assume that same 7% rate of return with significantly less risk? That's the goal. And that's the game. So once you identify that, then you can make adjustments in the portfolio. It's nothing different than if you're, let's say, in the first half of the game in football and you're a running team, but for some reason or another, you can't run to the left side. Then at half, you identify the issues and you make the adjustments. And then so now in the second half, you apply those adjustments and see where it, where it goes and where it takes you. Same thing here is that how can you make adjustments if you don't understand what the areas of issues or problems are? So that's sharp ratio, that's standard deviation, and we got two more for you. I mean, there's several more, but these other two we like to utilize as well to keep things very simple. The third one we like to talk about is beta, okay? And beta basically measures the volatility of your portfolio. So if you've got a beta, let's say the beta of the stock market is a one, Okay, you want that number to be as far away as one as you possibly can be, because if you have a beta of one in your portfolio, you're taking the same amount of volatility. And this is different than risk. Standard deviation is risk. Beta is the volatility. So when it comes to beta, you have that one. You want to make sure in measuring your portfolio and building it is that your beta is lower than one, that you smooth out your volatility. And because the one thing you don't want to do is have these massive up and downs and massive up and downs. You just don't necessarily want to deal with that. You want to just make sure that you got steady eddy going. And the only way you can do that is making sure that once you run a portfolio and the numbers are created, you pay attention to beta. And if the beta comes in at 0.75, 0.6, and you're you're, you're further away from one, the better for you. You're in waters, but the waters are a lot smoother. Okay, so that's beta. The last one that we like to utilize is in the science of building a portfolio. Happens to be, in, in our opinion, one of the most important metrics that really don't even get discussed at all in any way whatsoever. And that is alpha. Alpha. Basically, it's the value that the people helping you and your portfolio have. So if you've got a value of a positive number, and that positive number is a one or a two or a three, basically it's a positive number, then basically what that's telling us and telling you as a portfolio owner is that the individuals helping you with regards to building an efficient portfolio, that they are providing value to you. A alpha of zero or negative basically says you should just go ahead and buy the S&P 500 index by itself because the person helping you is not helping you at all. They are not providing any value in the relationship whatsoever. So alpha ultimately goes is the measurement of the individual's value that they provide to the investor and that portfolio. It's kind of like the report card. It's really important. So positive alpha is what person wants. If they're if they're just doing it themselves, investing in like the S and P five hundred is as the benchmark, and that they're just doing that completely on their own, then they're that's a zero alpha experience. You get what you get from the S and P five hundred, which again is the benchmark. On the other hand, in contrast, if you find a really good advisor who makes different uh, selections, and, and that person is versed in the things that we talked about today and can eliminate a lot of the risk, uh, and but preserve as much of the returns as possible, then you're likely to see a positive alpha. 
And that's a good sign. If you have a positive alpha, the higher it is, the more value that person is bringing as an advisor to to the person's. Right. And, and let's not mistake, alpha has a lot to do with risk and reward. If you have less risk and, and let's say you're taking 50% of the risk of the market, but then yet you're capturing about 90% of the return of the market, I, I can tell you right now, your alpha is going to be very strong. Oftentimes, because what we see is we see an alpha that's negative five, negative six. And these individuals have no idea that they bought 10, 15, 20 different stocks or mutual funds, and they think they're really diversified. But the reality is, is that they are assuming so much risk. They're assuming the amount of returns they're receiving for, for the risk that they're taking, as well as the costs that they're assuming just doesn't jive. And we see that more often than not. I'd probably say what, maybe I'd say what, 80% of the time when we run these metrics. Well, they, yeah, I mean, that's not surprising given that they don't have tools in place to figure out what their metrics, what their risk profile is. They No one's trained in how to do that. You're not taught that in school. You're not taught that anywhere. And so you're just focused on the water cooler conversation is what are the picks that are going to give me the most returns? And that's how most people manage their money. And then when things don't go so well, then they're lost. They're, then they don't know what to do. They throw their arms in the air and they, now they're making some really poor emotional decisions at that stage. Yeah. The beauty of having metrics and knowing how to apply these and how to gauge yourself, how to do the diagnostic is that it helps you eliminate the emotions from making decisions. And that's where uh, a lot of trouble begins is when emotional decisions are being made. I know that firsthand because it's not like I've never played the slot machine in Vegas. When you're playing blackjack and you think you may have a strategy and how you can beat the house and for a while it worked, but then all of a sudden it stops working and, and you get a little wound up about it. And so you start thinking, well, I'm going to double down because I need to make up for some lost ground. And, and I think the odds are in my favor. Now it's becoming an emotional experience. And of course, that leads to some very poor decisions. And then you've been playing for half an hour and all of a sudden you're done after one minute because you're making some bad, rash decisions. Right. So the metrics really help manage your emotions. It really does. And But furthermore, what it does, it basically shows you how intelligently you're managing your portfolio because most individuals don't go out of their ways to find out what these numbers are and look at these numbers on a regular basis. Because on a regular basis, if you do this monthly, you're able to see where your alpha is because all these numbers change. They change regularly. And just because you may have a positive two or positive three alpha, for 90 days straight doesn't necessarily mean you can have a negative two alpha in a very short while as, as well. As a matter of fact, you can. And it's just a matter what it does. If you can, if you understand this data, you're able to make the adjustments. And that's really what it is. This is a, when it comes to, to the investment side, the technical side, I liken it to a game of sports is that it's a game of adjustments. It doesn't matter what kind of sport you're in. If you're in basketball, football, hockey, or even golf, you've got to make the adjustment. If there's a problem with something that you recognize something's not working, you have to make the adjustment. But if you don't understand what that adjustment needs to be, if you don't understand the metrics or the data that can provide you the input that you can change the output, then how can you change that output? And that's why it's so important. We run into so many individuals that once we start talking about this, they start getting it. And they like it, but there are some out there that still don't necessarily buy into it because what ends up happening is they, they end up looking at the end result. The end result ultimately is, did I make money or did I lose money? And this is also a very good measure on how in the event that you have a, a down market, you may be losing money, but what are these metrics? Is the alpha still positive? 
Is your beta still below one? Is your standard deviation, your level of risk, is it still below 10, 9, or 8? Is your sharp ratio still strong? Even if these, even if the market's going down, you'll find that you're probably, I'll bet dollars of donuts that I would probably say that there's a very good chance that your portfolio, even though it would be down, would be down significantly less than an individual that was buying into the S&P 500 that had a standard deviation of 15 and whatever the sharp ratio is and a beta of one. That completes the science of building a portfolio. It's very, very interesting. That wasn't hard at all. Nah. All right, listeners, we're going to send out a quiz and uh, get your, your pens ready. Unless you're driving. We'll see how they yeah, do. If you're, if you're driving, yeah. please don't uh, take the time to, to do the quiz. Thank you, guys. That was very, very informative. Hey, uh, quick question. If people do have questions about this and they really want to follow up with you, what's the best way to contact you? 800-640-8105. That's our toll-free number. Again, that number is 800-640-8105. Or just visit the com, and you get some more information over there. As a matter of fact, we have some really cool free resources over there as well, as well as the white paper that we talk about, the uh, rules to financial liberty. All right. Thank you, guys. And thank you all for listening to the Financial Liberty Project podcast with Sam Legaspi and Ko Sukamoto. If you have not subscribed to the podcast yet, please click the subscribe now button below. This way, when Sam and Co's come out with a new podcast, it'll show up directly on your listening device. This makes it much easier to share these podcasts with your friends and family. Again, thanks for listening today. For everyone at the Financial Liberty Project, this is Eric Johnson reminding you to live your best day every day, and we'll see you next time. It's that time again where the call of the open road makes its way. We hope good fortune finds you on your own personal road. And until next time, we thank you for listening to the Financial Liberty Podcast. Click the subscribe button below to be notified when new episodes become available.